0: amen. Thank you so much for that choir. We do indeed want to lift high the name of Jesus. We seek to do that in everything that we do, but we know that we live in a world that doesn't want to lift high the name of Jesus. We live in a world that actually uh, most people want to lift high their own name. Most people are ascending or climbing a ladder of one sort or another. They're climbing uh, the political ladder, they're climbing the corporate ladder, they're ascending the social ladder, and once they get to the top, they have no intentions of coming back down. It's almost unheard of that someone would descend from their high estate, from their high blessings, their high prosperity. It's almost unheard of that someone would descend of their own free will. The goal of our world is to ascend, to climb at all costs. But the way of Christ is different. Christ indeed has shown us a different way. As we seek to fix our attention on this idea of Christ descending for us, I want to read uh, for you a few words from C.S. Lewis in his book on miracles. He writes, In the Christian story, God descends to re-ascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world up with him. Lewis continues, one has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great burden, some great complicated weight. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost Disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and he marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one might think of a diver who first reduces himself to nakedness and then glancing in mid air, he's gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water, down into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death like region of ooze slime, and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting until suddenly he breaks surface, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. Brothers and sisters, Christ did indeed descend, come down from the throne of heaven in order to bear the burden of our sins. To rescue us from the great depths of our lostness, but in order that He might reascend, taking us with Him. He was humiliated that He might be exalted. This morning, let us fix our attention on Christ, our exalted Lord. This morning, we are in Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Would you stand as I read God's Word aloud for us? Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, this beautiful language is indeed the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated as I pray for us. Father, we have heard your word, and these are familiar words. Most of us have heard this passage many times before, and yet we cannot begin to exhaust the depth of what you have to say to us. There are complicated portions, and so we pray you would make them plain to us by your Spirit. May we set aside our distractions, may we set aside our watches. May we focus our hearts and our minds on Your glorious Word. Move among us by Your Spirit, we plead. And would You do it for Your glory and the glory of Your Son, we pray. Amen. You may not have realized it, but those words that we just read were very likely an early hymn a hymn of the early church written in just those first few decades after Christ ascended. And by the time uh, Paul wrote this letter, it very likely was a well-known hymn there in the early church. Notice that the early believers were not afraid of having rich theology in the songs that they sang. In fact, we're going to see that there's, there's quite a bit of, of deep thinking going on here in this very rich hymn. Verses 6-11 through 11 form the hymn. And each verse of our English Bible, verses 6 through 11, would be a stanza of the hymn. But really, the hymn breaks apart into two sections. First, you have verses 6 through 8, which would be the hymn of humiliation. And then verses 9 through 11 are the hymn of exaltation. The hymn of humiliation and the hymn of exaltation. But before we dig into the hymn itself, I want us to quickly see the reason why does Paul Give us this hymn in the first place. Now, if we were studying the book of Philippians as a whole, we would take more time and we would dig into this further. But this morning, for our purposes, I just want to point out to you that the only command in those verses that I just read was in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Paul tells us to have this mind among yourselves. Well, What mind is he talking about? It's the mind of humility. As the church of the living God, we are to be a humble people. We're to intentionally make this our aim. Our goal It's to be humble. Paul had already given a command in verses 2 through 4. If you have your Bibles open, keep looking there. Verses 2 through 4, Paul wrote, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, how are we supposed to do that? That comes to the command in verse 5 to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Humility is a slippery virtue. Because once you think that you have it, you've immediately lost it. So it's hard to actually be humble. So why does Paul give us this hymn that we're about to examine? It's not just so that we'll pass a theology test. It's not even so that we might love Jesus even more fervently, although I do pray that as we study this text, you will love Jesus more fervently. I do pray that your understanding of Christ will come uh, further into submission to God's Word and how we understand Christ to be revealed in God's Word. But Paul has given us this passage, this hymn, so that we might live differently. We already have this mind in us that we're commanded to have. Verse 5, we have it in Christ. Because Christ has saved us, we have the ability to be humble, to think more highly of others than we think of ourselves. But first, Paul gives us this command, and then he gives the motivation. So if we had more time, we would seek to better understand the command of humility, but we're going to fix our eyes, our attention on Christ as we can continue our series. Who is Jesus? We're going to understand that He is Christ, our exalted Lord. So we begin with the first half of this hymn in verses 6 through 8. It's the hymn of humiliation. The hymn of humiliation begins at the highest of heights. What is our starting point as we see Christ's humiliation? He was in the form of God. Now to really understand what Paul is saying we're going to have to have a grammar lesson. I know that's why you all came this morning, is because you wanted a grammar lesson. But to understand what Paul is saying, we need to really dig into the language. Because when we hear that word form, we think of a shape that can change. Something that can be formed in this way, and then you can take it and remold it and make it into another way. But that's not what Paul is saying at all. In our English translation, the one I've just read from, we have that same English word form Three times in this passage, but Paul isn't using the same word every time. He's actually using two different Greek words, and they mean different things. So we have to understand what he's saying. Paul uses two Greek words: morphe and schema. Hang on, morphe and schema, but they can both be translated "form." That's why in the English, there's both in form, but they don't mean the same thing. Morphe refers to the inner essence. The inner being of who you are. And you already know this word. You just didn't realize it. You didn't know when you came to church this morning that you already knew Greek. But the Greek word morphe is right there in that word metamorphosis. And we all understand metamorphosis. You think about that Ugly little caterpillar. And it wraps itself in a cocoon, and eventually it bursts forth as a beautiful butterfly. Its outer appearance has changed, but its inner essence is still the same. It's still the same old bug. All right? So that's the inner essence. That's the morphe. But the other word that Paul uses, schema, or scheme in English, it refers to that outer appearance that can change based on our circumstances. It can be changed based on time and that sort of thing. So let me give you an illustration that will hopefully help you see the difference between morphe and schema. And remember, it is important so that we know what Paul is trying to teach us. Well, for the schema, if I was to, um, excuse me, the morphe, the inner essence, if I was to describe myself, I am a male. Now I understand that that's a controversial statement in our day and time. And I do boldly declare that even though I'm not a biologist. I am a male, all right? And I've been a male from the moment of my conception. That's my inner essence. That's my uh, morphe. It does not change. But the schema, the outer appearance, it has changed. I was first an embryo, and then I developed, and eventually I was, my mother gave birth, and out came a baby. And I developed into an infant and a toddler, and then I kept growing into a, a child, a boy, a young man, and eventually a man. Um, I continue to be a male and a man. I continue to uh, increase the number of gray hairs. And Lord willing, I will live to be an old man with much more gray hair. The schema will change, but the morphe remains the same. The inner essence, I am a male. Now, to understand what Paul is saying, he says that Christ was in the form of God. If you're reading the King James, many of you are and we're familiar with that. It says being in the form of God. The New American Standard is really helpful because it says, although He existed in the form of God. What Paul is saying is that Christ's inner essence, who He is, is God. His form, the inner essence that never changes, is that of God. Christ Jesus has always existed. He's always been God. That's the morphe of Christ. That's our starting point. So when we want to understand how did Christ descend for us, we have to understand where He started from. He started from being God. What else does the text tell us? It says that though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So this first stanza in this hymn of humiliation emphasizes that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. For again, the King James thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So Paul is telling us what he means. He keeps clarifying. He says, yes, Jesus was in the form of God. That means his inner essence, who he is, he is God. But Jesus, in all of his divinity, in all of his godness, he didn't view the glory of that he had as God as something to be grasped, something to be held on to, something to be clung to the way that a robber, the way that a thief clings to the loot that he has just stolen. That was not Christ's attitude. Some of you have a prized possession. It might be a family heirloom. It might be a special gun or a special coin. And your attitude toward this valuable possession is that if anybody else wants it, they're going to have to pry it out of your cold, dead hands. Do you have anything like that? That that's your attitude towards that valuable possession? That was not the attitude of Christ. When Jesus considered the glory of heaven, the glory that He rightly deserved because at His essence, He is God, He didn't cling to glory that way. That was not his attitude. Jesus sat in the highest of heights. He was seated in the heavenlies, and he began a descent for you and for me. How did he descend? The second stanza of the hymn, verse 7, tells us he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Again, this passage is so familiar to us in the King James, which says, He made Himself of no reputation. The NIV, the the pew Bibles you have there in front of you, it says, He made Himself nothing. But most English translations say, He emptied Himself. He emptied Himself. And that is what the words say, but what do they mean? What does it mean that Christ emptied Himself? Did He set aside His divine nature? Did he stop being God? No, absolutely not. Jesus did not empty himself by subtraction, but by addition. Do you understand that? Jesus did not empty himself by subtraction, but by addition. Look at what the rest of the verse says. Verse 7, how did Jesus empty himself? By taking the form of a servant. Well, there's that word again, form. And it's the same Greek word, morphe. His inner essence does not change. He's still God. And Jesus did not empty himself by subtracting his godness. He did not subtract his divine nature, but instead, he added a second nature. He added a human nature, just like you and me. Now, children, this is heavenly math because this math will not work in the school system. Jesus is not 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% God, 100% man, and His essence is still 100. We don't understand that, but that's what the Bible teaches us. He's very God, very man. He's not God on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and man on the rest of the week. No, Jesus is fully God, fully man, for the rest of eternity. So He's taken on a second nature, that of a human. He's being born In the likeness of men. I want to make sure you understand what Paul is saying. Because when we think about Christ and we think about what he has done for us, we normally run straight for the cross. We normally run right to the crucifixion. But Paul says back up. Because when you want to think about Christ lowering himself, Christ descending on our behalf, we begin with the incarnation. We begin with him taking on human flesh. He emptied himself by becoming a human being just like you and me. He, who was by his very nature God, took on, added a second nature, that of a slave, of a servant. But We should not be surprised by this. Jesus told us this in Mark 10, 45. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. And how is he going to serve? By giving his life as a ransom for many. So in this hymn of humiliation, we see the Son of God leave the glory of heaven. He empties himself, lowers himself by becoming like us. But the third stanza says, that's not all. Our Lord condescends even farther for you and for me. Look at verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He being found in human form. That's that same English word again, but this time it's the other Greek word that Paul used, the schema, the outer appearance. You see, Christ, the God-man, who by His very nature is God, who has added a second nature as that of a servant, He has come to earth and He came in human flesh. And when any time anybody looked at Him, they saw a human being following that same scheme of things that I just described to you. Christ really was once an embryo for nine months in His mother's womb. And then He was born and He was a really real baby. A baby with dirty diapers, a baby that snored, a baby who saw it like a baby... Three-month-old Jesus thought like a three-month-old. He wasn't thinking there, looking up at his mother, saying, Woman, you just don't understand who you're holding right now. He was a three-month-old baby, just like any other baby. But at the same time, he was fully God. How can we understand this? He went through the same scheme of things. He developed it. We see in the Bible about the age of 12, he began to really understand the mission that his Father, his Heavenly Father, had sent him on. And by the age of 30, he begins his earthly ministry. And every time somebody looked at him, they saw a man. And many dismissed him as a man. They said, that's Joseph's boy, that carpenter from Nazareth. And even today, people still consider Jesus being just a man. Just a good man, perhaps, they might say. Do you understand his humiliation? He left the praises of heaven, the recognition of the angels, the glory of the throne to become a human being just like you and me. Christ lowered himself. He became a human, but he humbled himself even lower. Christ lowered himself as a slave, but he humbled himself even lower. Christ lowered Himself to the point of death, but He humbled Himself even lower. Christ lowered Himself in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ didn't come to die a noble death. There are many ways that people die and we say, well, we miss them, but they died nobly. They died valiantly. That's not the type of death that Christ came to die. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There was no more humiliating way to die. In the Greek culture, the Gentile culture, the Romans, they had no harsher form of punishment. A Roman citizen would not be crucified unless they had committed a crime against the state. It was a punishment that they held only for the worst of the worst, and even then it had to be an outsider. They would not punish one of their own citizens that way. And for the Jews, they could not imagine something worse than that because, as we've seen before in this series, they knew in the Old Testament that if someone died being hung on a tree, being lifted up on a a cross, that symbolized the curse of God. And so there was no worse way to die. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, as we've seen in that passage, he wrote that the cross, the message of the cross is a scandal to the Jews. Because they said, you're telling us that this guy is supposed to be the son of God, but he's cursed by God by being hung on a tree? That's foolishness. And the world looks at that and says, Christ is supposed to be powerful, but he was so weak that he was crucified? That's foolishness. So both sides... Everyone rejects the message of the cross because it is foolishness. And yet, that's how Christ came to die. He humbled himself. He was obedient. Yes, to the point of death, even death on the cross. To you who are still in your rebellion this morning, you're still rebelling against God, you cling tightly to your sins and you refuse to embrace the cross of Christ, you who refuse to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, do you see what Christ has done? Do you see the depths of His great love to bring sinners just like you and me to glory? I plead with you to repent today, to believe on Christ and live. This is the hymn of humiliation. But in verse 9, something changes. The hymn of humiliation becomes a hymn of exaltation. Let's read verses 9 through 11 again. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Again, we have three stanzas, each elevating Christ higher than the ones before. The hymn of humiliation focused on the work of the Son, This is what Christ has done. But now the hymn of exaltation places the Father at center stage. What has the Father done on behalf of the Son? God the Father has highly exalted God the Son and bestowed on the Son the name that is above every name. The Son humbled Himself even to death on the cross. But the Father receives that sacrifice of the Son and He exalts the Son. He raises the Son from the dead on the third day, and Christ lives forevermore. The Father welcomes the Son back into that former glory that Christ had enjoyed as Jesus ascends back into heaven. The Son is welcomed back to the throne, and He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the Son intercedes on our behalf as our perfect great high priest, as we saw last week. So even as Christ Was humiliated. He lowered himself lower and lower, lower than we can even understand. He is now exalted by the Father. Don't miss how the text reads. It doesn't just say that God has exalted him, it says God has highly exalted him. It's not that Jesus is any more perfect now than he was when he last left heaven. He's always been fully God fully perfect, fully wonderful. Yet because of his redemption, because of what he's done for you and for me, he's even more glorious now than when he first left heaven. God has highly exalted him. And God the Father has freely, generously given him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is that name? We'll see it in just a moment, but for now, look at verse 10. Verse 10, the next stanza in this hymn of exaltation. Christ is so highly exalted, so that at the name, the name given to Jesus, the name belonging to Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. But you look at what Christ has done. Christ, being in the very form of God, He humbled Himself. So low that He became a human. So low that He became a slave. So low that He became an obedient slave. So low that He became an obedient slave willing to die. So low that He became an obedient slave willing to die a death on a cross. In your place. and mine. Christ humbled Himself. He humiliated Himself. But God... God the Father has highly exalted Him because God has raised Him from the dead. And God has exalted Him even higher. God has given Him the name above every name. And God has exalted Him even higher because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name that's given to Jesus. That's the name that we must confess. He is Lord. There is no other. The Philippians who sang this hymn long before we did, they were in a culture that compelled them to declare that Caesar is Lord. They looked to the greatest political leader of their day, and they were forced to declare that Caesar is Lord. We understand that we are quickly finding ourselves in an environment where we're pressured all the time to declare that something else is greater than our faith. The world tells us that our faith is okay as long as it's private and personal and really makes no difference in our lives. If, we, if it's that kind of a faith that you really have no faith, then that's okay. That's what the world is telling us. But make no mistake, just like in the church at Philippi's day, our political leaders are not Lord. The environment is not Lord. The economy is not Lord. Public health is not Lord. The LGBTQ cult is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And before you amen too hard, your wallet is not Lord. Your health is not Lord. And your family is not Lord. And your comfort is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone who calls on that name, the name of the Lord will be saved. Dear friend, have you called on the name of the Lord to be saved? Have you repented of your sins and trusted Christ? Don't miss what this hymn says. It says you will bow one day. You will confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord. At the name of Jesus, everyone one day in heaven, those who are already with God in the presence of God, the saints who have gone before us, they will joyfully confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And every name on earth, every person on the earth who is alive at the Lord's return, they will certainly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But even those under the earth even all of the fallen angels, even all who have rejected Christ, who have been separated from Him, will be for now, for all of eternity, they will certainly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the question is, will you bow willingly? Will you confess joyfully? Or when our King returns, will you be forced against your will to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? I plead with you, if you've never repented of your sins and trusted Christ, today is the day to do that. Don't leave this place without us talking about the Christ of the Scriptures. But dear saint, don't miss what this means for you. Just as Christ descended to rescue us, He has ascended to take us with Him. We will rest with Christ forever and ever. And we will reign with Christ forever and ever Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. O oh Christ, our exalted Lord, how can we not be moved when we hear of your humiliation and your exaltation? We've been reminded of what you have done for us. May we not leave here unchanged. We as your church joyfully confess that you are Lord. And we pray that you will save those who have not yet repented and confessed you as Lord. May we be reminded of the reason that you gave us this beautiful passage, which is to move us to humility, to move us to love one another, and think more significantly of others than we think of ourselves. May you continue to work in us by your Spirit and by your Word. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our exalted Lord, we pray. Amen.